You're listening to Drinking on the Job, D-O-T-J. I'm your host, John Coyle. Drinking on the Job is a toast to the culture of food, wine, and all things fermented. We'll be talking with winemakers, musicians, artists, late-night bartenders, scoundrels, and more. It's time to grab a glass before its last call. Mike Sager is a best-selling author, award-winning reporter. He has smoked crack with Rick James, hung with Aryan Troopers, has interviewed Kobe Bryant, and many more. He is the world's most interesting man. Am I supposed to take like a bong hit first? Or, you, know? <laughs> you can, actually, because I'm sipping mezcal. So uh, you can do it while I'm giving the intro. How's that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So, hey, Mike Sager joins me today. We're making a tweak to the show title today. It's called Drinking and Smoking on the Job. Uh, uh, a very good tweak. I'm sitting there sipping mezcal, and I just want to thank uh, Mike for coming on and thank our good friend Peter Cassell for introducing us. Uh, Peter used to tell me these crazy stories, Mike, about like he was managing a restaurant and you just came like in and you're sweating and you're like, what, you know, he's what's up? He's like, oh, yeah, I was just running with a, some gangs out in L.A., some some crack, some crack dealers. And he would tell me these stories, which I kind of half believed. And then he convinced me like, no, Mike's the real fucking deal. And I'm like, cool, then he's coming on the podcast. And I also have to thank Peter for that. Well, it's it's good because they're these these stories are actually written down, yeah. and uh, they were fact checked and lawyered <laughs> right. by all the various magazines, so you know that they're true. Yeah. So, um, uh, just so people know you, I'm just going to front load a little bit. I'll tell you of, of people about you. Uh, for 40 yeah, years, you've you've worked uh, uh, at the Post, uh, contributing editor for Rolling Stone, GQ. Esquire, you're author of a dozen books, uh, just writer at large. You wrote for Spy, Outside, uh, Playboy, Ask Mike Sager. Uh, many of your articles have been opted for documentaries and films like Boogie Nights and uh, Veronica Guerin and Wonderland and the Maranovich Project. So uh, that's it. Now we can get talking to me. I look at your books and your arc, and there's a little bit of gump here. You seem to be uh, at this like seismic cultural moments uh, in our country and Mike Sager's there reporting on it or writing a great story about it, um, which which is when people well, st- start looking at they'll see. It's kind of like Gump-esque because mm-hmm. I came from nowhere. So I okay. I I left college. I, I, I worked on a newspaper and then I, I, I had a freelance, I mean, an internship with this alternative weekly called creative loafing <laughs> and my job was you know just to go out and write stories right and um this was like you could do this for a job so meanwhile i got into georgetown law school and uh, i went there for three weeks and um i like i wanted to be a writer so i just quit and uh told my parents that they were reserving a spot for me <laughs> in the next year but they weren't. <laughs> and I eventually got a job at the Washington Post as a copy boy. I worked from seven at night till three in the morning in something they called the wire room, which was before the internet. So I spent the first, you know, month or two just like reading all the stories that came in. And I don't know, it's just uh, being in the newspaper, there's a bunch of stories, but it was just an infectious thing. And then 
since I'd never really read a newspaper, I had to learn newspapering from the best. Right. I didn't like learn bad habits. I learned, you know, from the best. And then, you know, I was driven. I was absolutely driven. You know, so I would work all night as the copy boy, then go home, change into a student tie, come back, you know, and try to write stories. I'd sit in whatever desk was open and freelance things. And, you know, eventually I got hired by Woodward. And so I just had to learn everything. So, you know, there, there, there is quite a bit of like striving in my work, like yeah. to try and prove yourself and then, you know, to become a writer in, in the magazine world and then to become someone on salary, right. you know, to be a writer, you know, it's just... Okay. It, it reminded so, me of like yeah. Jim, Jimmy Breslin. Um, you know, there, was a, there was a great doc with him and Pete Hamill. And what he was saying was, you know, he was in the newsroom. He was a, uh, you know, he was on the beat and he wrote about real people and he would have these, he, there's some reminiscence of your writing and his style where he'd be on the train in the morning and, you know, people would, everyone would have the newspaper in front of them. They'd smell like, you know, they'd just come out of the shower and there were guys just getting off their shift. Very colorful prose, but really from the, a man of the people. And his stories were really uh, right. in, infectious and truthful. Well, Breslin was a big influence. Um, you know, once I got to the post and I did sort of get, you know, uh, that promotion, it was, I was like, you know, the first white guy in 25 years to be promoted from copy boy to, to um, reporter. Of course, I never considered myself a white guy because I'm Jewish. And, <laughs> right. You know, white people don't necessarily like love my ancestors much, etc. So I feel like I'm Semitic. But anyway, that, yeah. that wasn't a choice in the affirmative action checkboxes. Mm -hmm. And um, they put me on this like old school thing where I did all the old jobs. Right. I did night police. I did night rewrite. I did cops and courts. I did, yeah, but you know, just the nuts and bones of, of reporting. And, you know, like the, I had these like crotchety editors and I'd hand in them a three inch <laughs> short and, and the guy would say, what hand was the gun in? And I'd have to go back and call the cops and they're like, oh, it's <laughs> you again. You know, and it's like, I had to make like 30 calls every hour to different jurisdictions, like 30 fucking calls yeah. with these touch tone phones. Yeah. And, um, you know, I sort of used my athletic ability in a way to my advantage. And I also used, you know, I'd kind of been a druggie coming up and mm. I played in bands and I knew a lot about drugs I might have done a little drug dealing in college, right. uh, which was a great uh, fucking business education that did me well during yeah. my freelance years of having to do business for myself, which many writers are afraid of, like reading a contract and stuff. But, um, you know. This was the kind of grit, though, that informs your writing. Yeah. Yeah, you had to, like, yeah. go knock on people's doors in the middle of the night and, like, sorry to bother you at a time like this, mm. but, you know, your son's been killed, and I don't know. Like, mind if I talk to you? Right. And you have to go in there and, like, absorb their, like, pain. Right. And, like, what it becomes is, like, like for me, what it became, because I'm, I'm very empathetic. I've, I come from, like, my father's, like, a, a small-town OBGYN. Mm. You know, he's a person that people come to talk to. And I've kind of always been like that. Which is what's missing, I think, from a lot of journalism today. There was a book recently written called We Need More Voices, and it's exactly what you're talking about. The, the gentleman wrote the book. I forget his name. He said, the problem is we have everyone coming out of journalism school, Ivy League education, 
they listen to the same voices, they get the same sources, and they write the same way. And that's what's missing with like when guys like Breslin and, and people like you who on the ground who just absorb um, and relate. You know, also the drug well, thing helps, man. It's just <laughs> being able to listen. Yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, you know, it's just like, it's sort of like, you can't tell me anything. Like, I, you know, I've, I've freebased with Rick James, you know. I mean, you can't <laughs> tell me anything. Yeah. That's what I told John Jones when we were the, the, the UFC guy. You know, he was, there were allegations of, of drugs and stuff like that. And I, I remember sitting in the cage with him in, uh, where was that, in uh, Albuquerque. And interviewing him, and I'm like, "Look, man, like you ain't done nothing compared to me. Like, <laughs> you're a little snorting the cocaine and taking a dick pill. Oh, is that's like so cute. <laughs> and and you know, he kind of en- ended up opening up to me and saying some very quotable stuff. Maybe they shouldn't said, but right. um, um, some of which I edited that- out for him. <laughs> yeah, well, you jumped way ahead of me with the Rick James, Rick James, uh, <laughs> free basin work. Rick James, you actually visited him in Folsom Prison and hung out with him and became friends with him. How does how does that happen? Well, you know, for the first like twenty or so years of my life, I did crime. You know, and, and then you know, I, right. I did crime at the Post, and then when I went to New York, it was interesting because I wanted to be more literary, and that's why I was going there, but. You know, to sort of be like Breslin and and Tom Wolfe and Gay Talese and yeah. Hunter and, yeah. and 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 those people and um, you know, so well, I remember going to New York, hat in hand. You know, in you know, I'm new here. I just want a, an assignment, please. And they're like all fascinated. That I worked for Bob Woodward at the Washington sure. Post, and like it was like, oh, you know, I never, you know, that's what happens. Like so much of my early career happened in my early 20s yeah i mean from i was at the post from 21 to 27 right and then like by like 30 i was a regular at, at rolling stone right but and, you might know, um, to put this in perspective you know, though, weird let's put this in perspective though when you were writing with woodward and wood and, and then you took this beat i and i mean woodward and bernstein broke the nixon story and journalism was at its peak i mean it was god's work it was such a respected profession Right. If you think about yeah, where we are now. Was, yeah. Well, there's a story arc there, you know, um, in, in terms of like, all right. So I didn't really, wasn't really aware of all that. All mm. I, although I saw all the president's men and mm. all my friends, we were sm- smoke pot and talk, talked about Nixon and all that right. shit. But, um, you know, I like really like found myself in this place with all these important people and, um, so I like could appreciate like kind of studying what they did, right. but also what they did was newspaper work, which was you know very thin. Yeah, you know it was like get it daily, get the facts, mm-hmm. you know all that stuff. I mean, you know like you were talking about different voices all writing. You know we need different voices because everybody writes the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's because like everybody looks at things the same way. Like I wrote this thing called Hunting Marlon Brando. I you know I think it's pretty good. Yeah. But it's still basically I'm just tap dancing because I fucking couldn't get Marlon Brando. <laughs> I mean, you know, I did if technically I was told to find him and I did and I looked at him, you know, but I didn't talk to him. You know, now I've given away the whole story. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's 
but What's, it's like a it's great, great story great trip along the way you yeah. know i mean that's the whole thing it's like that's why frank sinatra get, has a cold like sometimes the point is is that these celebrities aren't that interesting and it's like that's why sports writing has been so big over the century and a half because you know sports is kind of like they ask the same questions over and over again but a writer with the right skills can bring poetry to it because sports are a metaphor for life of course absolutely you know and um so it's a place where the writing counts mm -hmm. and that's why kind of i liked ending up where i did now in the case of rick james since we got off thank the subject, you <laughs> you know um i got sent to Folsom, and what i was saying was i I work with people who were in jail for 20 years and like for a long time when you had home phones and shit, I would be getting collect calls like all the fucking time from, you know, this inmate, that inmate, all, you know, these people I interviewed and now they're like clutching on to the only journalists they know and this and that. So I, I knew the whole thing pretty well. And one thing I really knew was like if you're in jail for a while, like slowly people forget you. Yeah. And like, you know, so to go to Rick James and to treat him on the non-prison level, and that was another thing. I was just like always treated, you know, sort of very Christ-like. As a Jew, my my biggest lesson of journalism is very Christ-like. It's like you know, do unto others as you would do unto have done unto sure. yourself. I mean, I'm always I'm the same with the guy at the Seven Eleven as I am with like Jack Nicholson, right? You know, just or Rick James. So yeah. I'm just respectful. And I'm listening. And plus, when you play the role of a journalist, you're a minister. And the longer I, be, I was a journalist, and um, I think it's reached 45 years now, um, with a publication every one of those years, a paid publication. I'm going to try and keep that going. Hmm. So anyway, with Rick James, I, I, I approached him with, with humanity. We both shared a, a love of cocaine, mm -hmm. I have to admit, and okay. sex right. together. And, um, and that was our, like, basis for a friendship, although neither of us were doing any at the time. He was mm -hmm. in jail, and I was, like, off of it for a while. But we would talk, and, like, um, this happened in jail, and then later, when he got out, he would call me, um, and we'd go have sushi uh, on Sunset. And uh, we'd talk about Coke, and we'd both be, like, grinding our teeth <laughs> like, side to side, like, talking about this shit. Yeah. And, uh, but then later, I think, you know, I remember he called me from, um, he had a stroke. And he, like, called me from the hospital. Right. Mike, I had a stroke. Like, what the fuck? You know, like, and um, another time he had a hip replacement. He called me from the hospital. It was all very, then, then I was going to do his autobiography, his, his biography, whatever. Uh, as told to, mm -hmm. and um, so in the you had to do, you know, the usual book proposal with two, you know, sample chapters. You know, you can bullshit your way through all the other shit you need, like a table of chunky table of contents. You know, right. the the letter. You know, the treatment. But you have you can't bullshit your way through two chapters. So I got together with Rick and I said, like, fuck it, let's just talk about crack and sex. <laughs> and um, so. Within like an hour and a half, like we were cooking, and um, I had always told him that you know I'd always, I was always a good cook, and um, okay. I had bragged to him because cooking Rick, food, yeah, okay. Rick, well, yeah, a good cook of freebase. Right. Uh, Rick, I learned right. early on okay. from like this this guy from the Washington Post. My connection was this kid from the Washington Post, and he went to his apartment and he had those like 
like little things hanging from the doorway, those like tinkly things, and then right. like it all like it's like Pier One Imports extraordinary. <laughs> right. They're freebasing his ass off, but he like showed me how to do it with like you know you. In those days, you could go to these stores and buy all the things you needed, these little like vacuum bottles and then, what the fuck? like, you know, whatever. So, yeah. I, Rick James, he was famous for like stealing Sly Stone's co cooker, Chef Boyardee oh, he... was his name. <laughs> um, and Rick James actually stole him away into his entourage so he would cook for Rick. You know, Mike, you don't see this stuff on the Food Network, you know? Well, you don't. So this is, I've got to give your listeners something <laughs> no, no, interesting yeah, yeah. you want to know. Hell yeah. So, yeah. So Rick and I, anyway, we, we, we did like, I don't know how long it was, like 36 hours Fuck, of yeah. just like huffing and him talking about sex stories. And, um, and I'll tell you one. Right. I'll just tell okay. you one. All right. Um, can I say pussy? Of course. On this podcast? Yeah, yeah, you can. I might need a, a hit to tell this story. That's all right. I'm drinking yeah, mezcal right now, so please buy, take a hit. Okay. <laughs> right, I think you need to have the sound. You need to have the okay. sound on the podcast. There you go, man. But anyway, so, so yeah, Rick smoked, Rick smoked so much crack that for 10, he lived in Mickey Rooney's old house, like, for 10 years, and he only realized when they busted him and they brought them out that the, there was a prize rose garden around the side of the house. He had never seen it. <laughs> he spent most of the time, like, in wow. his closet or in the bedroom wow. and just smoking crack and having sex for, like, 10 years. And, and you know, time can go fast when you're in that. And then when you can, like, afford something to help you come down, you know, like, a lot of amateurs don't know, like, because the come down is really hard. So, but if you're like a movie, you know, a, a sing, you know, you, you're a druggie on his level, you know, you just get Valium or Xanax right. or whatever, and it it brings you down. So anyway, um, the one sex Rick story. Love to, to do this thing mm -hmm. with a tube. Okay. Wait, I have to take my hit. Okay. <laughs> did you get any bubbling? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Say it's smoking on the job. <laughs> no, I have to cough. All right. <coughs> I call that a cleansing cough. All right. Um, <coughs> this is going to be actually a cleansing. Mm -hmm. I showed off for your podcast. There you go. Um, so when Rick was with a woman and he um, was using Freebase, he liked to use something called the tube. T mm -hmm. U B E. And it could be like a foot long length of like aquarium tube. Right. Or well, for some occasions, it could be several inches long, you know, for close work. Mm -hmm. um, or if you're really in a jam, you could remove, even remove the silver thing that connects the like the, the commode to the fucking wall, you know, that silver, yeah. like, like whatever piece of plumbing. Um, Hopefully he'd clean it out. But what he would do was, you know, when you smoked freebase, um, the it would make contact with your mucous membranes, and then it would pass the into the blood-brain barrier quickly. That way, it takes mm -hmm. like I've done all the research on this stuff for one of my books called Deviant Behavior. We did a whole like medical thing, like CSI. I wanted to do this like CSI thing. 
Like, you know how, like, they would show a bullet going through? I wanted to show, like, what happens when you smoke crack? Okay. What happens when you smoke freebase? And so we, I hired this assistant and we did this whole medical, like, thing. It's a great little passage in that. You know, it's a flawed first novel. There's way too many characters. But um, there's actually, this information is contained in that book because um, the book never got written. Um, because I had to guarantee Rick would show up for the interviews. <laughs> like they would give give him the yeah. money, him half and me half, and I had to deliver the book. That's how the contract read. So I'm like, sorry, I'm not doing this. But they were the greatest fucking like chapters ever. And included in there was this story of like his use of the tube. Okay. So what you would do is you're with a woman, and as I said, mucous membranes were, you know, uh, a great sort of blood barrier uh, entry point mm-hmm. and uh, to absorb coke smoke into the body and then into the brain and into the hy- uh, hypothalamus, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hypothalamus. Hippocampus. Yeah. I can't mm-hmm. remember now. Yeah. Hypothalamus, yeah. So, um, which is the pleasure center of the brain. It's all coming back to me now. Um, and um, And so wow, I'm just like remembering this so much now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So anyway, so Rick was with a woman, and so what he would do basically is just blow smoke into her pussy with the tube. And she would have like a huge orgasm. And Or sometimes he would take a hit, use the short tube, and go down and like, you know, do do the thing and then blow the smoke. And do the thing at the same time, you know, for like more kind of like ecstatic experience. It's like a, it's like when you're doing coke, um, it's like you know, it's almost like an instant rush. Right. If you blow out the smoke and take a deep breath of air and blow that that air out, then you just get hit by this thing. That in my uh, there's a story in uh, my book, A Boy and His Dog in Hell, which is about my time living with a crack gang in the early 80s, the right. Venice gang. And, and in there, I sort of write about the, like, the feeling of what it feels like when you take a hit. And I always, I always felt like it, it would make this like, sign of the cross through your body that went <clears throat> from your genitals to the top of your head, and then both ears were open. It was wow. like, wow! And like, you know, this ecstatic sort of, like open like pleasurable experience so um so rick would do that and he's telling me this story and he said you know i killed a girl with an orgasm in fact i killed two and he explained to me how he would there were like two different women that and i have no way of confirming this but there are two different women that he did this and they orgasm so fucking hard that they died and he had to bring them back to life like you know pump i pumping on their chest <laughs> and banging on their chest damn i'm rick james and, bitch um, <laughs> and and well that's the thing yeah. i was gonna conclude yeah. with so later on when when uh what's his name came out with i'm rick james bitch yeah. rick james thought it was funny he did okay because you know, he liked being known in any way sure. you know um but the truth is he never said i'm rick james bitch <laughs> okay. what he said was I killed a bitch with an orgasm. That's what he said. So, 
Are you talking about uh, meeting the uh, uh, the the founder of the Church of the Aryan Nation, basically, and being a Jew and having to pass yourself off as Italian? Oh, what I was going to say was it, it had never previously been collected, so right. it's like um, it's kind of new to. That's in Boys and Boy and His Dog in Hell. There's like it's like these are my favorite fucking stories of this type. Yeah, they're, they're great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so you know, in that case, that was one case where. I had done my research enough to know that um, they didn't like Jews, and I was get, I was getting nowhere doing that. So I felt it expedient because you know you read the story; it's like it's very it's menacing. It's kind of a menacing place to go to, and then you realize they're a bunch of douchebags. Right? You know, I mean, the guy reminded me of the you know, the second in command reminded me of like Lenny and of Mice and Men. Right. Yeah. And um, you know, once I spent a day with them, I like wasn't afraid of them. Right. And, um, well, I spent more than a day. I spent several days. But, you know, it's like, you know, if you were my, you know, my friend, I'd say, you know, I, I don't know if I can say this on a podcast, but it's just like, whatever you would like, kind of, whatever tropes you would put to like inbred, like hillbilly people, like who weren't going to pose any problem to you at all. Like they were like the three stooges <laughs> more than like some, you know, so they dressed up like Nazis. But so seeing them was fucking shocked pulling up and seeing a guy wearing a brown ss uniform you know with a with a belt and there's a, a german shepherd barking at me and it's really funny because i i was working for gq and i told him i probably needed a four-wheel for the for the story so they ended me up with a ba eddie bauer edition like bronco oh, or something it was like so so like frou-frou yeah so white and suburbia like, i'm like oh my god like look i gotta go among these like rough people and i've got my little you know sort of frou-frou eddie bauer edition but anyway so um it's just at that moment i had to inter improvise because i i felt threatened he said are you a jew like that's he he, yeah. he he comes down the steps and he like takes the dog by the collar and i roll down the window which is full of slobber from the dog like going, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. i mean it was like a nazi thing and you know yeah. I grew up in the in the uh, you know late fifties, early sixties, and our parents would sleep late on Sundays. And there was three channels, and you could guarantee that at least in one of those channels would be playing the World at War, and there would be cordwood Jew pajama bodies like in in something. Wow! And like I grew up with that, right? Like so, it's kind of like you know it's menacing but it's also like all right enough already so I, i'm kind of like i'm afraid of it but i'm not afraid of it Actually, so, you got some big balls, it's man. like <laughs> well it's just kind of like you just you know in most situations my inclination is to be myself and tell the truth mm -hmm. but in that one rare situation i didn't but it got me entry and what i say to people when i teach classes is you know um if you yell back at the tv you don't hear what the bad guy's saying. He mm. could be a bad guy, but you, you're like yelling at him. So right. it's sort of like to me, I'll go into the lair and sit down and listen because you have to know your enemy. Isn't that like that? that what's his name? That, that Chinese guy, the art of war. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, saying Lao, Lao Tzu. You have to know what Lao your enemy's yeah. about. Yeah. 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 You have to know what your enemy's about. So even if you don't agree with somebody, and then also the thing is, is when you end up spending time with people who you fear, loathe, you know, whatever, um, 
you do find some endearing human qualities in every single person. My ex-wife used to say, and this was like one thing I kind of agreed with her, maybe one in the course of 18 years, (laughs) maybe a few, but um, she used to say, I'd find something nice to say about Hitler. Yeah. And, you know, it's sort of like Eva Braun loved him. Yeah. And um, like somebody must have, there must have been some human side to Hitler. Like, but you and you should acknowledge both of those sides. Yeah. You know, you shouldn't like, because, and I think if only to make the story better. Sure. Because a villain that you care for is better than a villain who's so villainous that you can't care for him. Right. Like I made John Holmes. That's why my story was good. The photographer Bruce Weber once called Rolling Stone, and I happened to be there. And he's like, "I love your story because it's just not dirty." Yeah. Let's uh, let's get to one of your other other favorite stories. I love uh, uh, Kobe Bryant doesn't want your love. I mean, the whole world mourned when we lost Kobe, and you got to spend like a week with him. Just give us some highlights and something maybe people don't know, or maybe everything's been said about him. But right now, it's just like there's more memes and stuff, Instagram and uh, uh, motivational things from him. It's kind of like there's this weird thing about how society that, like, I call it the celebrity use curve. It's in Mm -hmm. the shape of a C. Maybe it's in the shape of a U. But um, it's like, we love them so much. We like love them, love them, love them, imitate them, love them some more, love them some more until one day they start making us feel insecure about our own little shitty selves and we start hating, hating, hating right. them. And that's what we do with our heroes. Right. And then when they die, all of a sudden everybody forgets they hate them and they're all on the Kobe bandwagon. Right. So when I, when I like met Kobe... The reason they were doing that is because, like, everyone hated him. Like, everybody fucking hated Kobe. He had the Colorado thing. He got rid of Shaq. He, like, was thinking of leaving the Lakers. You know, he was like, all this stuff. Sometimes I'd relish that time when everybody was finally in bed and everyone who's a father understands, like, can you, can eight o'clock please come? Can night, whatever time bedtime is, can it please come? And can I just go watch my basketball game? Sure. And it was on tape. And then I turn it on and like Barney had been taped over because we only had like <laughs> one tape or whatever. You know, like, so, I mean, I love fucking, I, and I, I love, I like, because I think I had to try really hard as an athlete because I was five foot three. Right. And, um, I, you know, I was always like overachieving. And I loved like what Kobe, I could see what Kobe was doing. I could, you know, like before Kobe, nobody was putting up all those shots. Yeah, that's, that's true. just after Kobe. So when I, I got to Kobe and I was the first person who ever I led into his life. And what I saw was this guy that like I identified with because like I'm a fucking artist and I have to do this. And I just like I'm driven to just be better every day. And like I don't like do it for anyone. I mean, I, I don't want to put shit in a drawer. Right. You know, I want it published, but I, I, but I don't want. I need to go out and take my applause. I just want to like have done it and like keep a scrapbook. Yeah, you know, and know that I did it because like that's like the meaning of life is like being satisfied with what you do. Mm-hmm. And when you write sentences, you know, like, um, there's always a chance to improve on your ability to write. Yeah, he just wanted to be like the best basketball player there ever was. Right. And for that, like, 
you know, Kareem Jabbar was like, you know, treated like that too, but he had different reasons. Like he was a, he was like wary of the press because they were racist in his day. And right. then, so he just like, fuck you press all the rest. Mm -hmm. Kobe, like the press, like didn't understand, like, and Kobe didn't understand. And then he married this like little girl who, so that's who's like leading around by the dick. Yeah. You know, like everybody knows your wife, like informs your impression on like what you should do with your life and yeah. all that stuff. So when I met Kobe, like everyone hated him. And, but like what he presented for me was work ethic. Yeah. They didn't really even like him before he died, kind of. You know, yeah. and, and then I'll say, on the other hand, I think. You know, Kobe was killed by the hubris of the great. Like, why did he take that fucking helicopter? That was hubris. It's like John Kennedy, John John yeah. Kennedy. Like, you think you're so fucking great, you're going to defy nature. Yeah. Like, so well, that's a good yeah. lesson too. So I, yeah. I have both lessons. Like, never think you're so fucking great that like the world gives one shit about you, because mm -hmm. like anything can happen. Yeah. But. So I enjoyed the Kobe story. Yeah, I love it. It's a great story. I want people to find it, and they're going to find it because when we finish up, I'm going to tell everybody where to find you. But John Wenner's got his memoir. Uh, John Wenner's got uh, the Rolling Stone. Yes. Uh, has a memoir um, coming out. Have you read it? It just no, came out. I don't generally read people's memoirs. No. So, but I'm proud to be associated with them, and I'm yeah, sure like when, the few times I've seen him, I approach him, you know, and friendly. And he like gave me my start. You know, he got me. He like. They said I could have a contract, and they sent me into Jan to talk about it. And Jan and I told Jan I think I need an agent for this. And he called up Lynn Nesbitt, and he says, "Here, I got somebody for you. And how much you, I, you know, how much you going to cost?" It, like, they were making a joke, and I went from like making like eighteen hundred dollars a story to like ten thousand a story. Okay, like in one phone conversation with Jan Winter sitting in front of me talking to Lynn Nesbitt, and I'm like, "Oh shit, that's pretty cool." Like I was just, you know, I was. Yeah, so I, I, I was never of New York, and I was always a little naive, but I think um, that's what, like, that was always worked to my benefit, because it was kind of like, I lived in Washington, and I always had, like, the, I always had the substance of D.C. and reporting, you know, behind mm -hmm. me, while I was trying to have the blitz of New York and writing and literary, and I think the New York people were kind of afraid of the D.C. people and vice versa, so I kind of, like, that was my safe spot, right. in a way. So you've interviewed everyone from Nicholson to De Niro, Ray Charles, Roseanne Barr, I mean, Rod Steiger. I mean, who would you love to interview? Um, do you still have, like, a dream interview or, like, these are the next five people? And what are you working on now? Um, <laughs> I mean, you must have a dream interview. I mean, People hate this answer, but I, I just really think celebrities, actors, and movie stars and sports figures should just play and not talk. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think they should be able to speak out about things they want to speak out on, but like right. these ridiculous sports conferences, you know, news conferences, and the ridiculous, like, a lot of my friends are sports writers, and they take it to a way different level, right? Thompson... Right. You know, Robert Sanchez, Seth yeah. Wickersham, like they take it to a different level, Justin right. Hecker. Yeah. Um, but most of this shit is so much shit. And it's like our, it, it's like our culture churns on this trivia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're at the time of the show where uh, 
God, a God, wants you to interview him. So he's, he's saying, Mike, I'm going to give you one last day on the planet. So I want you to tell me, uh, what are you eating? What are you drinking, smoking, and listening to on your last day on the planet? I guess I have to hurry up. Um, <laughs> I think I'm like doing what I did last weekend, which was hanging by the pool right. with my lady, both sitting in the same chaise lounge. Okay. And listening to various playlists on on Spotify because I can't keep all that shit in my head. And she's vegan. I don't know. I might eat a steak. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm eating a lot of fish and vegan food, but so that's what I'm going for. And definitely, I'll have my my OG Kush, which is. Uh, descended from clones stolen from the University of Mississippi in the <laughs> late 60s and brought out to Ventura. And it became OG Kush, the first OG Kush, which, by the way, does not stand for original gangsta, <laughs> but it stands for ocean grown. Okay. And, and you have an artist that you would, you would love to be listening to as you, as you uh, float away? Oh, I don't care. Any of them are good. Yeah. All of them are good. Okay. So, so we... Um, I want people to be able to find you. You have written so many books and so many great articles that are mind blowing. Like you, like we've talked about, it's like Hunter Thompson meets Gay Talese meets Joan Didion meets Truman Capote. I mean, your writing style is so brilliant. It's just you're mesmerized by it. So, how do people find what you've written? Thank you for that. Yeah, um, I think the best place is MikeSager.com. Okay. And, um, yeah. Maybe I would also like to, MikeSager.com. I'd also like to put in a plug for sure. her, uh, my labor of love, the Sager Group. Okay. .net. Okay. Um, we publish some authors who are famous and some who are not famous, but um, pay a small fee, and uh, we're fair. And uh, I feel like I'm doing, sometimes I feel like I'm doing the work of my dad who was an OBGYN. I'm delivering the baby of there you go. babies for doctors. And a lot of, a lot of like former New York Times bestselling writers have this book that they can't sell. All right. You know? And uh, so we make it happen. Cool, man. Thanks for, thanks for jumping on DOTJ podcast. Hey, I'm happy to be on the DOJT podcast today. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check us out at dotjpodcast.com. Until then, I'll see you at the bar. And she